Jesus said it, if you want to be great, serve. And we want, it's that time of the year where we need people to come out of the woodwork, get out of the sidelines, off the sidelines, get out on the field, and to begin making a difference. So in your bulletin, there's an insert like this this week. And this is so cool because down here, see, I thought this was a fingerprint, but it's really called a QR code. You can scan that on your phone. This is amazing technology here. And you can discover every opportunity that there is to serve here at Hope Community Church. And I think a lot of people, uh, they don't serve because they think, I just, it just takes so much time, it takes so much commitment. Well, really what it boils down to, do you want to be great or not, right, according to Jesus. But you know, there's some entry-level serving positions where you can check it out. For example, there are opportunities in first impression, parking cars, greeting people, handing out bulletins, where you can serve one week in a month, even in Kid City. Uh, you can serve one week in a month holding babies in the nursery. I mean, who doesn't like the smell of little babies? Why wouldn't you want to do that, right? Uh, you can register. You can, you can work in registration as families come in to register their kids. You can be behind the computer. You, you can hate kids and do this job because they're going to go on to their class. In fact, if you really don't like kids, you can come during the week and help set up a classroom so that the, when, when the teacher comes in on Saturday or Sunday, it's already set up. So all kinds of opportunities. Check this out. Get off the sidelines get into the game and start serving and make a difference here at Hope and make a difference in the kingdom of God. Now, a lot of you are thinking, okay, Mike, tell us about the Christmas offering. We were trying to raise a half million dollars over Christmas uh, to, to bless the partners that we minister with locally and around the world. How did we do? Did we reach our goal? Well, watch the side screen. Hey, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, man. It's time. Really? Joe said if we reached it, he'd shave it off, and here it is, Joe. I believe this belongs to you. Let Joe know how much we appreciate him. He's taking one for the team. You're the man, bud. Joe is in charge of security around here. By the way, if you've never seen him in long pants, he looks so good without the mustache, he shaved his legs too, but he got a few nicks, so he had to wear long pants this weekend. But let me tell you what we're doing with the money. Actually, so far, $538,000 have come in, and the money still continues to come in. I think that's incredible. What are we going to do with it? Uh, $100,000 is going to go to ICDI Jim Hawking. 80000 of that is to fund a team that will begin to repair 200 wells in the Central African Republic. These are wells that have been drilled years ago by other organizations, and they don't even work. And so we can fix these wells, get them up and running, and we have 200 villages that have clean drinking water that don't have it right now. And then 20000 is going to go to help us train the pastors, 200 pastors in Bangui that are now going to go out to the villages and start churches in these 200 villages where we're fixing the well. I think that's pretty, pretty cool. $84,000 is going to go to our partner in Watoto. Uh, we're building two staff houses up in Gulu uh, where we've just built the worship center there. $50,000 is going to go to our Hope for Haiti team. Uh, they are building a church out in the village of Zoranger. They've already started a school there. They've already built a medical clinic there. The church was meeting in the school. They've outgrown it. Uh, this is a building that will hold 400 people on the weekend. I wish we could build a church that could hold 400 people for $50,000, but they can do that in Haiti. Uh, $25,000 is going to go to Global Hope India to train 150 new pastors who are going to go out in the next couple of years and start 450 churches in India. 
$50,000 is going to go to Help One Now. Uh, it's to help build a building in Port-au-Prince. It's a new uh, a partner that we have. This is a building that's going to be a school during the week for the orphans that they're ministering to. Uh, at night, it's going to do occupational training. Uh, it's also going to have discipleship classes on the weekend. It's going to be a church, so $50,000 well invested there. $60,000 goes to Global Hope, uh, just with future projects that are showing up on our radar screen that we can respond to. Uh, $75,000 is going to go to our local ministry here, Hope on the Homefront. Uh, you may remember a few weeks ago we raised $10,000 to purchase a trailer and fit it with all the construction supplies that we need. And we can now go into under-resourced communities in our neighborhoods. Uh, did you know there are still people in Wake County who don't have indoor plumbing? Did you know that? And we find these people, we go in, we come in, and now they have $75,000 to work with, to, to build bathrooms, to upfit houses. We have so many grandparents in Wake County who are taking care of their grandchildren because maybe their daughter is in jail or in prison or maybe passed away. And so many of these grandparents, they don't have much income and their houses are falling apart and we can come alongside and help them. And then we also set 40000 aside for our Youth for Hope after school program some partnering that we're doing with the Triangle Alliance as we strive to reach the triangle and change the world. And as the money continues to come in, it will be set aside. I promise you every penny will be invested in making a difference in what hope is involved in around the world. Give yourselves a hand for your commitment and your sacrifice to make all of that possible. Now it's a new year, we got a lot of new people. I've met people last night, I met people this morning, maybe they came to the Christmas production or they came to Christmas Eve and, and they thought, wow, we didn't know a church like this existed. So now you're back this weekend, you're wondering what is hope all about? What makes it any different than any other church? Uh, if I were to become a part of this church, what do you expect of me? What can I expect of you in return? And so it's basically what's hope all about? So I thought what a great weekend just uh, as we're getting into this new series, Come Together, just to sit down for a little while and, and ha have a fireside chat. Where we are, where we're going, and it's a great weekend for all of us because we can be reminded of why God created the church. By the way, let me just begin by saying this. When God designed the church, he created the church. He didn't create it to be a fortress. It wasn't a mentality that we're on the inside, they're on the outside. We're the good guys, they're the bad guys, you know. They, they, we need to, you know, they, keep them out there. Keep the black hats out there, the white hats in here, right? That's not why God created the church. It's not an us and them mentality. He didn't create the church to be a country club. It's, it's not a place where a few of us get together. Everybody knows each other and everybody loves each other, but there's no place for outsiders. It's just for the insiders. That's not what God had in mind. God created and designed the church for one reason. It was to impact the world, to change the world. He designed and created the church to spread the good news that salvation, the salvation that Jesus Christ brought to this earth, it is for all people. Not just good people, not just perfect people, not just holy people, not just Baptist people or Methodist people or Catholic people, not just American people. Salvation is for all people. And that's why since the church's beginning in around 33 AD, the church has been involved in spreading this life-changing message of Jesus Christ throughout the world. It's been involved in giving people new hope, giving people a shot at life. Churches have instructed parents how to raise kids and spouses how to love each other. For years, churches have been teaching the difference between right and wrong and truth and error. On top of that, churches for centuries have been providing a place for people to belong. It's been providing a refuge for people to run through, run to when, when the bottom falls out of their life. But you know, if, if you know anything about the local church, it doesn't stop there. Because for centuries, 
the local churches, have motivated people to stand up against evil, to stand up against oppression in our culture, in our society. Churches have led the way in providing things like food and water and clothing and housing and medical care and medical attention to under-resourced areas all over the world. In fact, you take the local church out of the under-resourced areas of the world, I'm telling you, the lights go out. But this is the question I want to try to answer this weekend. When is a church actually operating the way God intended it to operate? When is a church actually hitting on all cylinders? When is a church at its best? More specifically, when will Hope Community Church be at its best? And I'm going to be honest with you, you would think that would be an easy question to answer. It's not. It's actually a tough question. And it's a tough question to answer because there are so many opinions floating around out there about what a church is supposed to be. What is it that a church is supposed to be doing? For example, every once in a while, someone will walk up to me and say, hey, have you heard of such and such a church? And they're usually thinking of a specific church in a specific city, and there's something that this church is known for. In other words, there's something that this church does really, really well. For example, they may say, have you heard of such and such a church? It's a Bible-teaching church, right? And when they tell me that, I know what they're saying. They're saying that on Sunday mornings, the guy walks out, the pastor walks out with it like an industrial-sized Bible, you know? And he says to the congregation, turn to the book of Habakkuk. And there's this big whoosh as everybody simultaneously turns to the book of Habakkuk. And they teach the Bible, which is a wonderful thing. We teach the Bible. We make no apology for that. The problem is, after that one-hour Bible study in that Bible-teaching church, Often everybody, they pack up their Bible, they take all their new knowledge, all their new information, they go back to their home and that's it. And the people who continue to live in the community around that church, but they don't go to that church, they continue to be unreached. And the people in the church, they're only coming for the Bible study, so they're not growing in relationships, they're not connecting to one another in community. The haves aren't caring for the have-nots, but boy, during that one hour, every weekend, they really, really teach the Bible. I mean, it's like seminary on steroids. Now, here's my question. Is that really what God had in mind when he designed the church, that we just teach the Bible? Of course, you got the other extreme. You have some churches who are very involved in doing good deeds and good things in the community, but they don't teach the Bible whatsoever. And because they don't teach the Bible, there's no life transformation taking place. Is that what God had in mind when he designed the church? You can visit other churches and their weekend service is like a two-hour worship extravaganza. I mean, it's like worship Olympics. Everybody's trying to out-worship each other and hands are up and eyes are rolled back and tears are flowing and everybody's all sweaty and worked up. And, and I like that every once in a while. You know, two hours of that, you go home, take a shower, eat a good meal, take a nap. I mean, that's a good Sunday in my book, right? But for some churches, that's all there is. Outside of that worship, there's nothing of substance really taking place. Is that what God designed the church to be? Of course, you can go to the other extreme. Some churches are very liturgical. Many of you have come out of that background, and if you, if you show up at one of those churches, you better know what's going on because they're going to say stuff, and you better know how to repeat it or you're going to look like an idiot. I mean, it's lean to the right, lean to the left, stand up, sit down, read something from the Bible, go home, and show up next Easter or Christmas. You know who I'm talking to. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, is that what God designed the church to be? Well, if I had to choose... I would have to say, without a doubt, the very first church in the New Testament that's talked about is the church that's talked about in Acts chapter 2. 
is without a doubt, hands down, the best example of what God had in mind when he created the church. The church in Acts chapter 2, I'm telling you, that is church at its best. And, I, and, I, and I, there's several reasons I say that. First of all, you can read the story on your own. But this, this, this church in Acts chapter 2, it literally exploded into existence because it was committed to sharing the right message. And that message was the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. They exploded into existence. By the way, I love to tell the story of how hope started. And, and I, I would just say this, we did not explode into existence, okay? In fact, we were probably the worst church start in the history of the world. If somebody wants to write a book on how not to start a church, I'm the guy you want to talk to. I'm the guy to interview. We didn't have a clue what we were doing. We had five families that started in Mikey's Clubhouse at Brampton Moore's apartment. That We didn't even have a name. That's how poor we were. So we met at Mikey's Clubhouse, and we had a little Bible study. And then we finally went public at East Cary Middle School that first Easter. Now, here's the thing. There weren't many of us. So every one of us wore five to seven different hats. Every one of us had like five, seven, ten different jobs at the church. And, uh, in fact, we were so poor Everything we owned as a church fit in the back of my little Mazda pickup, okay? And on Saturdays, I'd put the little sound system in. I'd put the cribs in. I'd put the sheets that were going to hang up in the classroom, some plants to make the, the band room look. And I, and, I, and I would pray all Saturday night it didn't rain because I didn't have anything to cover the back of the pickup with. And I'd drive to East Cary Middle School, and we'd go in and we'd mop the band room, and we'd set up a few chairs, and I'd set up the sound system, and everybody would set up cribs and hang sheets. And then I would preach. Of course, there was nobody there to listen because they were all serving somewhere. So it's just basically me in the auditorium. And even some weeks I had to sing because, you know, that's how bad things were. And, and then it was all done. We put it back in my pickup truck and take it back to my house. I mean, we had absolutely nothing. And we just kind of plodded along. We grew slowly. We grew to about 120 in the school. And after about two and a half years, we moved over to our little fire trap on, on Chapel Hill Road. And, and God blessed us. And we grew to a few more hundred. And then someone gave us this property we're on. And the school built their building. And we began to meet in the gym. And we grew to a couple of thousand. And we raised the money so that we could build this building. And we've continued to grow. And now we have three campuses. But I got to tell you, we didn't explode into existence. We, we just kind of lumbered along. We just didn't know if we would ever get any traction whatsoever. I'm telling you, that's not how the first church started. This church went from practically nothing to over 3,000 the very first day. Now, let me tell you why it happened. It happened because Acts chapter 2 tells us that Peter, okay, St. Peter that just a few weeks earlier had denied that he knew Jesus, right, Peter? But Jesus died, was buried, three days later came back to life. Guess who he ran into? Peter. Now that'll change your perspective on things, right? So now Peter's all in. So he's thinking, I got to tell everybody. So he goes, finds a corner in downtown Jerusalem, and he stands on that corner, and he passionately proclaims that Jesus Christ was, in fact, yeah, the guy you nailed to the cross was, in fact, the Son of God. He died on the cross to pay for the sins of every man, every woman. He was buried. Three days later, he came back to life. He ascended back to the Father. And one day, every man, every woman, every child, every teenager who has ever lived is going to stand before the Father. And the Father is basically going to ask one question. Why should I let you into heaven? And the answer better be because your son, Jesus Christ, came to earth that first Christmas. 33 years later, died on the cross so that my sins could be forgiven, so that my guilt could be paid for, so that I could be reconciled back to you and have a relationship with you. Peter says, that's what happened to me. I get it. And it changed my life, and it can change your life. My point is, that was Peter's message 
That was his story. And it's interesting, you read in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what do we do? Okay, what do we do with this information? And they, they explained some things, and then it says this in verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They exploded into existence. Now, what do I learn from this? I learned that as a church, if we want to be our best, just like this church in Acts chapter 1, we also have to be committed to sharing our story of how Jesus Christ has changed our lives. I mean, we have to have this unswerving commitment to get out into our community and to proclaim the message of grace. We have to boldly share the story of how God not only changed our lives, how he can change the life of everyone. I mean, this has to be our unshakable conviction. This is something that has to be a part of our DNA. Now you say, well, Mike, why is this so important? You know, why do, why do we share people with people how God changed our lives? I'll tell you why. It's because the church, and remember the church isn't a building, the Greek word church is ekklesia. It means called out ones. We are the church. This is just a building. When we go home, there's just a building here. When we show up, the church is here. Understand, the church is the only organism in the world, the only organism on the planet that God has mandated to spread the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. Maybe you figured it out, but government doesn't have that mandate. That's not what their interest is. Industry doesn't have that mandate. Universities, they don't have that mandate. The church, we've been given the mandate to proclaim the only message, get this now, the only message on the planet that can alter the direction of a person's heart and life. And as a church, we'll be at our best when every one of us begins to share the story of how Jesus changed our lives. And yeah, we get together and we celebrate on the weekend, but when we leave here, we get out there and we share it with our friends and we share it with our coworkers and our family and we share it with our neighbors and we do it passionately and we do it in such a way that there's a steady stream of changed lives constantly pouring into our church and, and it can happen. But for it to happen, we, the church, have to seize the opportunity to see Jesus Christ change other people's lives by telling the story of how he changed our life. Now, it worked for Peter, it will work for us. That's the first thing. Second, to be at our best, we'll have to live what we learn. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean as we hear God's word, study God's word, read God's word, and we come across principles, presets, truths that God teaches us, instead of just ignoring them, we look at our lives and say, well, that's not really the way my life looks. And we begin to work to align our lives with the standard that God has set for us in his word. Look what it says in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to prayer. If you have a New American Standard translation, it says they continually devoted themselves. In other words, there was this continual yearning to grow spiritually. There was this continual yearning for their lives to change, to match the standard that God had called them to, to become transformed, to reach their full potential as a follower of Jesus Christ. They were constantly yearning. They were devoted to that. It wasn't hit or miss. It wasn't hot or cold. They were devoted. And it's interesting, this word devoted in the Greek, uh, the Bible was written in the Greek, it means ferocious dedication. It's this idea, oh, this is a priority. This is something that's at the top of my list. This is something that is so important to you, you, you reorient and you reorganize every aspect of your life to accomplish the object 
of your devotion, the thing that you're committed to. It says in verse 42, they continually devoted themselves. They had this ferocious dedication to align their lives with what God wanted them to be. And you get the sense from reading Acts chapter 2, everybody got into this. Everybody bought into this. Everybody began to take responsibility for his or her own spiritual life. Now let me just ask you a question. How strong of a church would we be? What kind of impact could we make in our community and in our world if everybody said, enough peeking over the fence, enough drifting around, enough half-hearted commitment, I am going to get off of my butt, okay, in 2013, and I am going to begin to take responsibility for my spiritual life. Can you imagine what it would be like around here? I am going to devote myself. I am going to be just ferociously committed to maximizing my potential as a follower of Jesus Christ. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like around here? Can you imagine the thousands of people that come to Hope attend all three of our campuses? Can you imagine everybody serving? Can you imagine everybody giving? Can you imagine everybody sharing their story of how God has changed their life? Can you imagine everybody connecting in community together? But let me tell you where all of that begins. It begins by living what you learn. Once you begin to live what you learn, once you decide, I'm going to be obedient to the life that God has called me to, what's interesting is everything else just seems to fall into place. And you know what that tells me? It tells me that basically a lot of spiritual growth boils down to things like character and obedience and discipline. It boils down to having an attitude that says, I I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to work ferociously at developing the right kind of patterns in my life. I'm, I'm going to make the decisions to be in the places. I'm going to make the decision to engage in the activities that are going to help me grow. They're going to help me, my character become more and more like Jesus Christ. And then I'm going to stick with those decisions no matter what. Come hell or high water, I'm going to stick with those decisions. I'm telling you, it's the no matter what people of the world who always grow. It's the no matter what people that you look around and you observe their life. They're the individuals that you want to be like because they are ferociously dedicated to becoming all that they can be in Jesus Christ. Now, let me tell you, when we get there, hope will be at its best. But it starts with each one of us taking personal responsibility. Third, to be at our best, okay, we have to get to the place where we are willing and interested in connecting with others. And I love what it says in verse 44. All the believers were together. They were connected. They were all intermingled, right? Intertwined. And they had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts every day. Now I'm going to tell you, that kind of commitment to be connected in community together to have those kinds of relationships, that's a lot different than the church I grew up in. Now, don't get me wrong. The church was friendly. If you showed up at the church I grew up in, everybody's going to smile, shake your hand, even give you a little tag that says guest. They're going to give you a pencil that said, into your search for a friendly church. I mean, that, that's how friendly my church was, right? But here's the deal. After church... Everybody, you know, all the men would go stand together in one little circle and they'd talk about what, whatever men talk about, work, sports, weather, you know. The ladies, they would stand around in their little circle and I don't know what the ladies talked about, never made it in that circle. My guess it had something to do with HGTV or something like that, right? 
But after they finished their little surface conversations, everybody would go home and that would be it, right? And it's because the church I grew up in, and I'm just being honest with you, rarely ventured beneath the surface. People didn't talk about their needs. People didn't talk about their heartaches. People didn't talk about their fears. People didn't talk about their problems. People didn't admit to having struggles and problems. Nobody said, I got a 14-year-old who I think is literally possessed by Satan. Can somebody help me with that? No. No one said, my marriage is absolutely falling apart. Nobody said that. You just put on the smile. Everybody showed up. Everybody was happy. Everybody went home. We didn't open up to one another. We weren't honest with one another. We didn't care for one another. We didn't share our lives with one another. But man, read Acts chapter 2. These people were so filled with the love of Jesus, it just spilled out of their life. I mean, it just oozed into all of their relationships. They hung out together. They ate together. They opened up their hearts to each other. They cared for one another and they prayed for one another. They built each other up. They served together. They worshiped together. I love it. It says they even pulled their resources. Think about this now. They even pulled their resources to make sure that everybody's needs were met. Wow. I don't know that it's ever been equaled by a church since Acts chapter 2. But I can dream, right? And this is my dream. One day, this will be lived out in our congregation. In fact, my dream is that every single person one day who calls Hope Community Church home will be able to experience community and relationships the way they experienced it in Acts chapter 2. Wouldn't it be so cool if we could stamp out loneliness? You know, we are lonelier than ever. Although we're connected through technology more than ever, statistics show that we're lonelier than ever. That's why I'm going to be starting this new series, Come Together. How do you develop these kinds of relationships in your life where you don't fall through the cracks? How do you do that? Now, we believe this is best accomplished in what we call small groups, and I'm going to start talking about that next week. And I'll tell you why this is so crucial. You can't care for one another. You can't love one another. You can't support one another in an environment like this. I mean, think of it. For most of you, this is your church experience. Rush into the parking lot. Get in late. 80% of you. (laughs) Stare at me. You do notice the back of the head of the person in front of you. You don't know anything about them. Maybe they have a cow lick or dander. That's that's all you know about them, right? (laughs) Right? And then you can't wait to get out of here. In fact, when I say let's pray, boom, many of you start heading for the door. Like, I don't want to talk to them on the way out either. I want to get out of here because I don't want my life to rub up against anybody's life. You can't care and support and love one another in an environment like this. We think it best takes place outside of here. Maybe it's eight to ten people in your neighborhood getting together in your home. Maybe maybe it's, it's a group of men getting together in a conference room where you work before work. You know, maybe it's a group of you. We've got a bunch of people who work at SAS, right? Our giving should be a lot better, by the way. But anyway, it's... I saw his rock, I saw Goodnight's rock collection. I'm telling you, I was impressed. But here's the deal. Maybe, maybe for you, it's a group of people at SAS who get together in one of those beautiful dining rooms you have over in one corner every Thursday afternoon at lunch, and you share life together. You get to know one another. You learn to pray and support and listen to one, of, one another. I'm telling you, it'll change your life. Now, I'm going to be really careful treading down this path because my wife's sitting here this morning. But right now, as we sit here, Lars' dad is is literally in the, in the last, last few hours of his life. And, uh, uh, and he's 91, incredibly godly man, and uh, so we're, we're kind of wading through those waters right now. 
But I will tell you this. When he passes, and he, and he will, he will, maybe today. Um, I have 114 staff here that I love, and they love me. But they will not be our chief primary support system. I have a great elder board. But they won't be our primary chief support system. I tell you, the people that will support us, the people that we've been in community with, small groups over the years. We started one one time for parents of teens because we all thought our teens were demon-possessed. They were. They were. I had a lot of exorcisms in those days. <laughs> and then our teens grew up, so we started in empty nesters. And we found out there's... The kids are still problems, even as adults, right? And so we prayed through them and got them through that. And we cried a lot together. And we shared life together. I'm telling you, when word gets out that Laura's dead has passed, they will be the ones there saying, what can we do? How can we help? They will be, sometimes they won't say anything. They'll just love on us. Now, here's my question for you. What's your support system? What's your safety net? When the bottom drops out of your life, who are you going to talk to? I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, Mike, that's why we have you. Well, I'm going to tell you something. Your life sucks. <laughs> if that's what you're planning on. Because I'm not good at it. I got about this much mercy, you know. It's like, here, go read a verse. And, and you know, tell me how it's working out for you and type, type stuff. Nah. My dream is that what happened in Acts 2 can happen here at Hope. And, and when it happens, when we begin to connect with each other, we'll be at our best. Fourth, to be at our best, we'll have to serve where we're gifted. It's interesting, one of the most memorable events in all the Bible took place in a little rented hall in downtown Jerusalem. There were no cameras, there were no reporters, there were no lights, no crowds. It was Jesus and the 12 disciples getting together to have a meal. There's a problem. The kid who was hired to wash feet it was a no-show, right? So instead of one of the disciples deciding to wash feet, which was customary, by the way, in that day, the first one who showed up typically did that role. They, Luke says they were sitting around a table arguing about who was going to sit on Jesus' right and his left when he set up his new kingdom, who was going to be the greatest, who was going to be in his cabinet, right? And Jesus, I mean, and in fact, Luke uses the word, there was this paroxysm, there's this just, there's a heated argument, there's a fight going on about who's the greatest. You know, Bojangle chicken bones flying across the table at each other, and Jesus is just sitting there taking it in, right? You remember what he said? Nothing. Nothing. Got up from the table, took off his robe, put a towel around his waist, found a basin of water, and he went around and washed every one of their feet. And then he sat back down, put his robe back on, and this is what he said, now as I've done to you, you be willing to do to one another. As I've washed your feet, as I served you, you be willing to serve one another. And you've got to think about this. Here's the Son of God, the King of kings, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. <laughs> and his attitude is, I'm just a servant. And if the Father wants me to wash your feet, no big deal to me, I'll, I'll wash your feet. But he goes on to say, guys, it's deeper than that. Guys, there's a problem here with you guys. You've got to change the fundamental way that you look at yourself. You're arguing about who's going to sit on my right, who's going to sit on my left, who's going to be in a position of power, who's going to be in my cabinet. This is what you need to focus on. You just need to focus on being a servant. And whatever the Father asks you to do, you do joyfully. If he sends you somewhere, you go. If he says stop doing something, stop doing it. If he says start doing it, start doing it. If he says I want you to get out there on the limb of faith and trust me on this one, just get out there and trust him. But you've got to begin to see yourselves as servants first to the Father 
God and then to one another. Now understand, this is what Jesus was teaching. That is the litmus test for greatness in the kingdom. I don't care how much you know. I don't care if you've been to seminary. I don't care how much you give. Jesus says, the litmus test of greatness by my standard is, are you willing to serve God and are you willing to serve one another? And who of us wouldn't want to serve God? We'd line up to wash Jesus' feet, wouldn't we? But each other? Hmm. These people in the first church, they were so committed to serving. (laughs) They served each other to the point there wasn't a needy person among them. I mean, can you imagine what our church would be like if, if, if every one of us here saw ourselves as first servants to God and servants to one another? I mean, what if our attitude was, God, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it, just tell me, you know? What if every day when we weren't here, what if we were out there in the world serving our coworkers, serving our bosses, serving our neighbors and spouses and kids and serving our church? What if our operative words every day were, how can I serve you today? Hey, you seem a little down today. Can I pray for you? Is there a practical need I can help you with? How can I serve you today? Now, I understand the problem. I understand the problem. You know, you guys saw that video earlier, and you thought, oh, man, I'd love to serve. I just wish I wasn't so busy. Oh, I'm such a big shot. Uh, Obviously, that's somebody else will do that. Or some people even say, I give, so I don't need to serve. Mm -mm. Jesus didn't say giving's the litmus test for greatness. He said serving. And so there's, a, there's just assuming every, somebody else will do it. So this is what I want you to do. Look at the person on your left. Go ahead, look at them. Look at the person on your right. They're not going to do it. They're a bigger loser than you are. <laughs> right? Right? So what are you going to do? I got to tell you, my heart was just so encouraged this week. Somebody, somebody from our finance office came in, and, and, you know, we were running a little bit behind budget ending the year and said, we just want you to know... Um, and they show me one of our families gave a $100,000 check that put us literally able to finish the year in the black. But the, here's the thing. I know this family. And one of the quietest, most unassuming families you'd ever meet in their life. And not only that, he parks cars in the parking lot. And they take the shuttle. And the reason they do those kinds of things, you know why? They got the heart of a servant. They got the heart of a servant. And if we all had that attitude, I'm telling you, this place would just change overnight. I know what some of you new people are thinking. Wow, this guy's a nag. Yeah. And I get worse. I'm an angry old preacher. I told you, if you're looking for a country club, uh, go, to, go to Preston. Here's the fifth one. Fifth one. <laughs> fifth one. To be at our best, we'll have to learn to give of our resources. You knew it was coming. It's interesting, read the New Testament, you'll discover that almost every time the Bible makes reference to this first church in Acts chapter 2, you know what it talked about? It mentions the generosity of its people. They were a generous people. And it's because they somehow got to the place where they began to see uh, their stuff as really being God's stuff. That God just kind of loaned them. And, and so because of that, they began to yield control of their money and their possessions to God. And one by one, they began to realize that life really doesn't consist in the abundance of things. They realize one by one that life really isn't about the accumulation game. It really is about the leveraging game. It's leveraging all God has given you for the good of his kingdom and other people. You've got a little bit of time and a little bit of opportunity. What are you going to do with what he's given you? These people did that. They actually lived that way. And, and they did it with such diligence. They gave with such diligence that people in the community 
began to look at the church and respect the church. They didn't go to the church. They didn't become believers, but they sure respected the church because of how the church used its resources to take care of one another and to take care of the community. And again, I don't know if it's ever been equaled. But what would it be like if every single person here just surrendered their resources to God fully and completely? What if everybody at Hope said, you know what, my stuff isn't really my stuff, it's God's stuff. And let's see, God, here I'm going to put it on the table. I got, I got a 401k, I got a checking account, I got a job, I got a ferret, two dogs, a cat, and a kid in a minivan. What do you want? What do you want? You know. I mean, yeah, raising $500,000 is cool. Awesome. But if everybody had this heart of generosity, can you imagine the impact we could make on the world? And I would just encourage you, as we get into a new year, if you're not giving, start. I think the goal you, you strive to get to is 10%. I think that's a biblical standard. Maybe you can just start with 1%. And again, if you're giving 6%, go to 7%. Trust God to do the miraculous in your life. Partner with God in your finances. I like to tell people, we upped ours, up yours. Up yours. I think that's going to be my next bumper sticker. And... Uh, But let me just say this, whenever you invest in your resources in God's kingdom, understand you're investing in the only real thing that lasts, Last. Now this is when hope will be at its best. It's when we live what we learn, serve where we're gifted, give of our resources, connect with others in community, and share our story of how Jesus Christ has changed our life. And what happens is we begin to live out these traits. We begin to accomplish our mission of loving people where they are. That's our mission statement here at Hope. And encouraging them to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. And as we do that, this is what will happen. We will reach a triangle, and we will change the world. I believe that with all my heart. I'm just naive enough to believe if it could happen in Acts chapter 2, it can still happen today with the power of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. It can happen. Now, when I started the church, I had a little sticker on my computer, and it says this. If we closed church tomorrow, would our community even notice? See, there are a lot of churches that can shut down, and nobody would even know they existed or has left. But I want this to be a church that has such impact in the community and the world that if for some reason we had to shut our doors, it would leave a void in our community that you cannot imagine. But what it will depend on is, are we willing to make the commitment to be the church that God designed us to be. Now next weekend, next Saturday morning from 9 to 11, right here in the auditorium, I'm going to be teaching our discovery class. This is not for membership. This is if you want to be a mission partner. We don't, you go to, like I said, go to a country club if you want to be a member. But if you want to be a mission partner and find out what it means to be a part of hope and change the world, this is the class to be at. And we get behind the scenes, the nuts and bolts, how we handle our finances, how raises are set, you know, how do, what's our strategy and vision, how do we handle problems, how do you get into leadership, and we give a lot of time. You can write out questions, and I'll answer every one of them, and it gives me a chance to connect to you. You can, you can go online. you got that little fingerprint uh, uh, QR code. Uh, you can just text Discovery to that phone number, and you'll be registered, or you can go online. And I'll look forward to seeing you next week. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for all you're doing. Thank you for what you'll continue to do. And Father, may we walk out of here this morning with a fresh commitment. You don't go to church. You be the church. Help us to be the church you designed us to be. In your name we pray. Amen.